Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... Not scuba tank deep, like hellish deep. Like we are knocking on Satan's door and he's answering in his slippers deep. Yeah, fair play, Kian, because that's quite some shout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, huge. like the tuba... It's. It, I just kind of wish it didn't exist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> one and all, to the first transatlantic episode of How Many Geese? We're going across the pond. Well, we're not going across the pond, but by, by the power of technology, we have gone across the pond and then across a whole continent. Oh, no, just the pond. Are we not going, are we not going to the other side of that? continent so this now suggests that we should bring in who we are talking about who is sat very patiently looking at us as we try and work out which pond we've crossed in which direction but shall you introduce yourself yes hey jack and roddy great to be here my name is kian ravai um i am currently in indiana but i am originally from los angeles so you're both right in a way i i was just about to say i have no idea where indiana is so that could be, <laughs> that could be, I have no idea where in America Indiana is. It's, 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 it's closer to the East Coast. Okay. So we're just crossing one pond and then we're stopping. I see. So Kian, um, you reached out to us and do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself so that people can understand why, uh, who you are, why you're here, why we're crossing ponds? Totally. So I'm a composer. Uh, I write mainly in the classical tradition. I write music for instruments like violin and cello and piano and and when I'm lucky the orchestra and I just wrote this piece for flute and piano that's inspired by endangered California bird songs and so animals have really been on my mind and that's why I reached out to you all that's fantastic so how when did you write the piece I wrote it in uh 2021 okay so and then did it how long did it take to write so what's the process how were you out in the forest listening to the birds and then sort of found your a particular bird you wanted and sort of followed that i'm imagining now through the woods kind of i don't really know what composer in you know tablet or you like wax tablet and scroll in hand <laughs> as you sort of <laughs> well, a, I think... a quill yes exactly <laughs> i'm not quite that old school but composers i think are by nature uh indoor creatures so most of my research was uh through the internet and this is also late COVID times, so I didn't have a chance to like go explore the entirety of California. But I did um, identify a few birds that I wanted to uh, memorialize, uh, and I listened to their bird songs and I kind of internalized it, and then I turned them into musical melodies that I could spin around and pass between the different instruments. And after that, it was just a matter of uh, finding chords that I liked and melodies that I liked and putting them all together into a big piece. So how long, just to kind of understand, because I've, you, well, there's no two ways about it. You are the first composer I've ever spoken to. So <laughs> there might be some very basic questions on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. How long have you been composing music? Well, I started writing songs when I was like 14. And actually before that, I, I, I was into like electronic music production. But I didn't really start getting into classical music until I was around 18 or 19. So um, I'm 23 now. It's been about four or five years that I've been doing this. But I've been playing piano since I was four years old. And so classical music has always been a part of my life. And how does it work in composing a piece? Do you pick one instrument 
and you sort of work that instrument out and then you plug all the other instruments in around that? Or do you compose each instrument at the same time, if that makes any sense? Yeah, that's a great question. I typically compose all of them at the same time because when you're thinking about what sounds nice on top of each other, you kind of have to consider what everybody is doing. So it's a little bit of both. I might write like 10 seconds of the piano and then add 10 seconds of the flute above that. But I'm not writing the whole piece just for the piano and then the whole piece just for the flute. Cool. So the is it a concerto you've done, the Endangered Birds, is that right? It's more of a sonata, I would say, Ooh. maybe a suite. A concerto is typically for a soloist with an orchestra. Okay, so what is a sonata and what is a suite? <laughs> a sonata is an, a piece for an instrument with piano, usually. A violin sonata is, is uh, like a Beethoven or Mozart would be a long piece for a violin and piano. And a suite is uh, basically a collection of dance movements in a way. It originates from the time of Bach when people would actually dance to classical instrumentalists in these exquisite ballrooms. But now it's more about the idea of dance. Nobody's actually dancing to this piece. Yeah, no, that's the one thing I do know about classical music is everyone who listens to it sits very still all the time. (laughs) I guess apart from we have Strictly Come Dancing in the UK, you guys have Dancing with the Stars. That's the only time I see people moving to classical music, actually, now I think about it. Yeah, it's an unfortunate truth, but that's how it is. So what made you decide to go... You, you're clearly musical, like you said, been playing piano for years and all the other instruments and started composing music. What made you want to do an endangered bird piece? Where did the birds come into the the story of Kian? Well, I grew up a Boy Scout. Do you, do you have Boy Scouts? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, it's not as... No, it's, yeah, we do, but yeah. not in the same way. Okay, well, I'm curious to learn how it's different. But basically, I went camping a lot uh, when I was a kid all over California. Um, places like Catalina Island, which is off the coast of Los Angeles. Um, Northern California, Yosemite National Park, which has some of the most beautiful views. Um, so I was seeing a lot of wildlife, hearing a lot of birdsong. And nature has always been something very close to my heart. And the fact that climate change is endangering so many uh, wildlife species, uh, that's an issue that's really close to my heart. So I, I wanted to do something in my own way through my art. And is, is California, given the environment of California and it already being a very hot and dry place, is that making it more susceptible to you know some of these species being really pushed by climate change because of the environment that it is already yeah absolutely we call summer fire season in california (laughs) because every year there's awful fires that just wreak havoc throughout the whole state wow yeah i mean that's not something we really have to deal with here although last summer was the first summer i certainly remember in the uk when we had temperatures over 40 degrees centigrade where there were like quite a lot of wildfires but not in the same level that you guys have over there Okay, so in doing it, were you doing it for like a, well, basically, did you do it off your own back or was it part of a course or? Uh, it, it was kind of just on my heart to write this. I guess it was a commission, which means there was an ensemble that asked me to write them a piece. And they were asking composers to write pieces that had to do with California ecology. Okay. Oh, so cool. one of the composers wrote about earthquakes. Earthquakes are a big thing in California. Um, somebody else wrote about drought. And I chose Birdsong. I imagine the earthquake one had a lot of trombone. <laughs> <laughs> that strikes me as the most earthquakey. 
Because because you said that yours involve like the flute. Is that is sort of flute focused? I mean, that's a very birdy. You know, I don't know what instrument I'd go to for a drought. I was just about to say, where would you go for with the drought? Yeah, I'm not sure. It gets very conceptual at that point. Rustle some tumbleweed together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Something very dusty. Like a sort of a dusty, like a flute, but packed full of dust. Oh, man, that sounds like an <laughs> asthma attack waiting to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a very good point. Can I ask, I want to ask about birdsong and when you start listening to the birdsong. So I am hugely into my birds and in the UK, you know, can identify most of the birds that I hear by song. And people think it's absolutely amazing. You know, people think it's the most incredible thing and i always say it's the closest you can get i think to having like a superpower because you can stand with your eyes closed in the middle of an environment and you can tell someone everything that's around you and i've always wondered and i wonder whether you might have some insight on this whether there is because people say well how do you do it how is it possible you know it seems so difficult to start wrapping your head around it but when you start listening you start learning that the birds all have their own pitch and their own and sometimes they don't even need to do the same notes the same melody but you know it's that bird because you've keyed into the pitch Uh, and I'm not musical in any way whatsoever but I have always wondered what the crossover is there between birdsong and 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 just understanding it and recognizing it and whether that whether there is a crossover there with people who have a musical ear at all and I just wondered whether you found any of that stuff when you were listening to it that's fascinating I've always admired people like you who can just identify birdsong out of the blue and actually when you go to the conservatory something that you have to do is take a musical skills class where they start playing chords at the piano out of the blue and you have to say oh that's a major seventh chord that's an augmented uh seventh chord that's a a a diminished seventh chord um that's an interval of a minor tenth and so on and in a way what you just described is kind of exactly the same thing but with birdsong um, so in a way, I think if you ever had to take one of those courses, you would already be very well equipped to succeed. <laughs> That's really interesting. I'd never thought about, yeah, I'd never thought that there might be a, an equivalent quite so dead on to that because yeah, it, it like I say, it's sometimes it's not, it's not just about the melody. It's about, oh, well, you just know that it has that pitch and that bird has that tone and, and then you just, you know, can put it all together from then. And I always wondered whether, yeah, people who had that musical background might be able to pick it up whether there was something in their brain that you can key into if you're trying to learn birdsong that fuses those two things together but yeah maybe i'm gonna to have to take one of those one of those musician tests and find out that that's a i mean i don't know the names for any of them that's the thing they just play the sound and i'd be like sounds a bit like a wren <laughs> <laughs> totally so in composing the in composing the suite, how many different birds did you incorporate? And then the second part of that is, did you want to basically replicate the bird song via flute or whichever instrument? Or was it much more kind of trying to get the vibe of the bird across? Because, for example, a peacock has a tremendous vibe about it. It's Mm. got a huge tail, loads of colours and all the rest. But the song of the peacock is not particularly melodic. It's very much like, well, Jack, I mean, it's a sort of... It's a... Sort of sound. (laughs) (laughs) 
There you go. That's my peacock impression, and it's not something you would ever want to put in a uh, musical performance, I imagine. That's really funny. It's funny you mentioned peacocks also because I grew up in this city in the um, suburbs of Los Angeles where peacocks roamed wild through the streets just in that what? city. And yeah, they were just hanging out on my front lawn like every day. It, they, there was an arboretum there and the peacocks would habitually jump over the fence and just start piling into the streets. Um, so I'm very familiar with peacock sounds and I can confirm that <laughs> they would not be conducive to musical treatment. <laughs> so how do you choose, how did you choose which ones were? Well, I went through a lot of bird songs and some of them just weren't. So I might have chosen a bird song that was more endangered, but it had a crappy bird song that wouldn't work for my piece. So I kind of went with the ones that sort of had the most inspiring songs. And for the most part, I was trying to replicate the song in some way rather than uh, have the vibe of the bird be the essential feature. But one of the movements um, is a Swainson's hawk and hawks don't have songs. They just have these calls. And so this one just is a descending call that goes like, oh. And so that whole movement is just melodies that go down and pitch lower and lower and lower. And that's how I treated mm. that problem, I guess. I wanted to ask, what was your favorite one? My favorite is the second movement. Um, that one is called Belding Savannah Sparrow. And this one has a very distinctive uh, bird song. It's just a few sparse chirps that gradually accelerate into a buzz. So uh. you can imagine like... And that's how the movement starts with the flute. And it is passed between the piano. And it's just a very exciting romp, basically. And that's why I like it. Do you have any plans to do another similar piece, perhaps based on, you know, endangered newts or... <laughs> what else? Frogs. You could do a good frog one. You could do a good frog one, yeah. There's a lot of frog calls. They're very vocal. But they're not sort of... They're not like melodic in the same way, are they? They're not... They they, they make one sound like sort of over and over again, the yeah. frog, rather than a uh, a tune Frogs make sounds, not tunes. That's my tagline on frog sounds. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a great idea, too. I mean, a lot of modern music is more concerned with sounds than tunes, I would say. So it's <laughs> There the we bill. go. It's the next viral TikTok hit waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, if the birds are becoming a classical suite, the frogs are getting dubstepped. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Man, I would, I would pay to hear that. Is there, I mean, sort of, you know, jokes aside, is there a plan to do more of these kind of like nature-inspired pieces or was it a kind of one and done now you've done the birds? Well, I do like the frogs idea. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket, but I did just write a string quartet. 20%. Inspired by, <laughs> I will, <laughs> inspired by uh, poems of Emily Dickinson that are about nature. And this one is less about specific features of animals and more about the vibe of the poem and the vibe. So there's a bird, there is a bird movement 
there's also a movement about a sunrise and a movement about the moon in the middle of the night and a movement about uh, butterflies. So I'm not trying to capture any specific animal per se, but it is sort of a journey from morning to night, like a nature walk. Oh, nice. that sounds amazing. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. How do you it's... go about doing like butterflies? I would say if I was to rank everything on the amount of noise it makes, butterflies are so low. <laughs> so low on that list. I don't know where you'd begin doing a movement for butterflies. Well, I was kind of thinking about butterflies visually. So, you know, they're flapping their wings really fast. And violinists have this technique called a finger tremolo, where you can imagine they're placing their finger on the note, and then they're moving another finger like this rapidly up and down to alternate between the two notes really fast, kind of like a butterfly flapping its wings. So that's what the movement is structured around. So for those ones, it is more about sort of taking the vibe of the animal, but given that it doesn't make a noise or the, or like you say, the atmosphere of a particular time of day or something. Yeah, and, and kind of the movement quality of the animal. Every animal mm. has a different way that it moves through the world. So the butterfly is quite fluttery, um, whereas uh, there is also a snake movement, and that one is very uh, snaky. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I thought we could go on. I mean, I sent you a question before this that was sent in by one of our listeners. So for anyone new to the show, uh, Jack and I frequently get questions in from the listeners and we do get more questions than we're able to answer, which I have to admit is a very lovely position to be in. So thank you everyone very much. But this question came in and we had been sitting on this thinking, God, we just don't, we're not, we're not the people to answer this question. We don't have anywhere near the knowledge required. And then completely separately, Kian slid into our DMs. You're welcome. <laughs> and the question suddenly found its person. So... If you were putting together an orchestra, what animal would play each instrument? And now, just before I hand over to you, Keon, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about, I don't know, what actually makes an orchestra? How many different instruments do you need? Or And then over to you. All right. I have been thinking about this question for weeks. <laughs> there are quite a lot Excellent. of individual instruments in the orchestra. There could be anywhere from 10 to 20 plus individual instruments depending on the size of the orchestra and different instruments like we just talked about have traditional animal associations like flutes and birds clarinets are sometimes associated with cats but i thought maybe i could give my personal take on some of the lesser known instruments of the orchestra can i can i just go back to uh clarinets are associated with cats sure what's what why okay there's a good where have you been jack (laughs) I can see, like, birds, you know, I can see birds. Birds, they they tweet, it's very melodic. Flutes, very melodic. And then clarinets and cats, I just, it was just a complete curveball I didn't expect coming. There's a good reason for this. Um, Prokofiev has a piece called Peter and the Wolf. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this. There's actually a famous recording of David Bowie narrating this. Oh. 
And no, I've never heard of it. All the there's some animals in the story, and they are represented by different instruments. And the cat is represented by a clarinet. Ah, uh, okay, okay, I see. Okay, so and... let's start with the woodwinds. Um, instead of flute, I decided to talk about a bass flute. Not sure if you've ever heard of bass okay. flute. It's exactly what no. you imagine. It's just lower. Just lower, yeah. In fact, the, the, t- the tube that produces the sound is so long that it has to curve back on itself. Oh. Is that how you just make the sound lower, just by making a longer tube? Yeah, exactly. That's why tubas are big and piccolos are tiny. I, like, I think classical instruments are simultaneously the most like amazingly complex things in my mind and then also just incredibly simple it's like you hit this you blow into this it makes a noise you change what it's made out of or how long it is and it makes a different noise yeah yeah right and people like study their entire lives just to make a pleasing (laughs) noise on one of these instruments um okay so since flutes are typically associated with birds i thought the bass flute has to be an ostrich oh yeah nice yeah and can i just say i've googled bass flute on my phone and visually it has ostrich energy (laughs) do with that what you will but Um, and they also they also make a you know those big birds make very deep sounds as well you know like one of the ones we've spoken about on the podcast before the cassowary very closely related to the ostrich big absolute demon terror bird with a bright blue head and a horn from nature's thunderdome and how many geese's favorite place australia makes a sound that's equally as terrifying as the way it looks with a really deep sort of bassy sound that's like you can't sometimes you play it through laptops and you can't even hear the sound because it's so deep and you need to put headphones on so that's the bass flute sure so the next instrument is you've heard of the oboe probably but maybe not the oboe di amore which means love oboe in italian it's an earlier version of the oboe, and it has a nasally reedy quality that reminds me of dolphins. And it also has a love in the name. And, you know, dolphins are creatures that enjoy a bit of romance. So That's, that's <laughs> one way of putting it. <laughs> dolphins do indeed enjoy a bit of romance. As we, oh as we have covered in uh, our infamous episode, The People vs. Sea Otters. Oh, yeah. That episode got us in some trouble, Kian, over just how much uh, enjoying a bit of love we said some animals did. But we'll move on and probably <laughs> cut that in the edit. But just so you're up to speed for this call right now. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we, uh, that was a sponsored episode and the sponsors thought we, uh, you know, we spoke a little bit too much about animal love. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. You had to cut it yeah, out yeah. in the end? No, we, we had to... Uh, we, we, so we basically did... That episode was... Um, sort of the dark side of animals that people love. So it was uh, how sea otters and dolphins and ducks in, you know, their mating strategies can be a little bit heavy-handed. And, yeah, it was a bit too close to the bone for our sponsors. So that that episode still exists, called The People vs. Sea Otters, but we had to record a new episode with the sponsor's name on it. Uh, and then that one had to become an unsponsored episode. But it was yeah. all biology, you know, it was all just what yeah, animals do. <laughs> you're just being, uh, you're just having integrity and saying it how it is. Yeah, and making some, <laughs> you know, little quips about R. Kelly along the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway. The love oboe. Yes, the love oboe. So next 
there's a clarinet. The usual instrument that you have in the orchestra is a clarinet in B flat, but there's also a clarinet in E flat, which is just a tinier instrument. It sounds a lot more shrill and it's, it's very cute. And for this one, I was thinking about one of my favorite animals, the munchkin cat, which is kind of like a tinier, cuter version of a cat, just like this clarinet is a tinier, cuter version. The munchkin cat? It's like a, a cat dashund. <laughs> oh, wow. It doesn't look real. These pictures that I'm looking at, they look like little stuffed toys. Exactly. They're adorable. And, and they stay small. This is not a micro pig situation where, you know, you buy it and then all of a sudden it's like a wild boar running around your house. No, they <laughs> they stay small. <laughs> That's okay. They're really I like they look like little yeah, little, little fluffy toys. I can imagine if the if the clarinet is associated with the cats and you're going for a smaller, cuter version, this right here, the munchkin cat, is a great shout. I'm going to skip ahead to the brass section and I want to talk about this instrument that has a great name, the sackbut. The hang on one more time. An, <laughs> I think I thought I the, thought I thought you said the sackbut. You are correct. <laughs> how do, how do you spell that? <laughs> exactly how it sounds. Sackbut is an early version of the trombone. It has a bit of a softer tone. And it's, it's like trombones. It's a little bit awkward, kind of unwieldy. So mm -hmm. I associate them with sloths, which are some of the clumsiest and most awkward animals I can think of. Yeah. And I can imagine in like a... What's the, what's the Disney... Uh, Fantasia. Mm. Do you know Fantasia? Yeah. And yeah, I can just see like a sloth sliding down a tree to like a... <laughs> While it's asleep the whole time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that. And the sack butt just would add an extra element of <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the name. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sloths are sack-like. Mm, they're just, they're just like a, a bag of stuff hanging off a tree. Yeah, coated in algae. Pretty much. Okay, I like the sack butt. Okay, another one is the sub-contrabass tuba. This may be the largest instrument in the world. It's completely impractical and extremely rare. You have to play it standing up and it's larger than a person, sometimes almost twice as big as a person. It has quite a terrifying sound. And all of these things remind me of, I don't know if you've heard of this, a magna pina squid. Have you seen these videos of big fin squids? I, I, I've never heard of one of these. No, you have, you've, I mean, bringing an instrument we've never heard of, that was easy. You were, of course you were going to do that. Pulling a squid out the bag that we've never heard of, now you're putting us through our paces. <laughs> so I just want to say, I've Googled subcontrabass tuba and Jesus Christ, it's huge. <laughs> it's so insane. I, I don't know what this squid is going to look like. <laughs> What's it called? It's called a magna pina squid. Oh, yeah, I've got it. Or, or also known as big fin squids. Oh, my God. Whoa. Oh, no. They're the most horrifying animal I wish didn't exist. 
So for anyone listening, to begin painting the picture, we've gone into the deep part of the sea. Not scuba tank deep, like hellish deep. Like we are knocking on Satan's door and he's answering in his slippers deep. (laughs) Yeah. And they, well, just the first thing I found about these squids is that they were only known for a very, very long time from their larval stages because the adults dwell so deep in the dark. And they are, yeah, they're, they've got really, so the, the ones that I'm seeing here, they've got incredibly long tentacles, just like really long trailing tentacles. And then their main body has got almost like ray-like fins on it. And all the pictures are just taken in a really eerie, greeny, blue, black, inky darkness where you can tell that this thing has loomed out into the lights of one of those submersibles at the start of like the you know the horror films when they're in the mariana trench and then they're going down and it's you know it inevitably ends up being megalodon or whatever but this thing is far far more intimidating than a giant shark yeah every picture of them if you if you had a venn diagram with three circles one circle is those big, like, War of the Worlds, uh, like, tripod machines that kind of walk across the earth and kill everything. Another circle is Slender Man, if anyone remembers that. And then the third circle is one of those, like, Blair Witch Project kind of found footage horror movies. And in the middle of all of those is this squid. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, well, well I mean... Yeah, fair play, Kian, because that's quite some shout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I huge. mean, like the tuba, it's it. I just kind of wish it didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say I had the same reaction to looking at pictures of that tuba, to be honest, because it is offensively, and I'm glad you said unnecessarily large. Because <laughs> there's a, there's a picture of a man here who I'm going to assume his name is is Graham, who is like just the tuba is just massive and it looks like he doesn't have the strength to hold it up if it falls on him it's going to kill him yeah and this squid is unnecessarily hellish so (laughs) yeah excellent exactly I'm really enjoying how this orchestra is coming together. Uh, Just to visually think of it, just in the animals we've got, we've got an ostrich, we've got a dolphin, unclear whether there's water being provided, we have a munchkin cat, and then we've got this (laughs) demonic squid looming over everyone. So I am very keen to keep packing out these orchestra stands. Is there a name for... Auditor- I guess auditorium, packing out the stage, packing out the auditorium. I yeah, don't know the, the halls, concert yeah. hall. The hall. Yeah, yeah. No, let's crack on. Yeah, you're going to have to come up with a name for, for maybe this is a, the, the How Many Geese Philharmonic or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I really like how you, um, I really like how you describe instruments. I don't know if this, uh, I didn't know if this was good, but like describing an instrument as smoky, I really... I don't know. Yeah. You're like a, like when you hear chefs talk about, you know, 
this is a very congratulatory onion. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I never thought of an onion as being able to do that. Yeah. It's like being on a wine tasting for the ears. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate we just, that. We just talk shit about ducks. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. So, you know the trumpet. We've all heard a trumpet. But maybe we all haven't heard a piccolo trumpet. Again, pretty much what it sounds like. It's a smaller, higher-pitched version of a trumpet. And I think of them as red pandas, which are the cutest little animals I've ever seen. They just look like a little imaginary stuffed animal that's been brought to life. Yeah, I think I think red panda is a shout for the cutest animal on planet Earth. I think they are, you know, they're right up there. Without a doubt. They're just, they're very wholesome. I never see them do it, you know... As far as I'm aware, they don't do anything problematic. They just and they they do that thing where they're that goes viral every now and then, where they get spooked by something like a rock or whatever, and then they stand up on their back feet and try and make themselves look bigger, but just make themselves look even cuter. So yeah, I think if you're going for it, if you're going for something to embody just all around adorableness, a red panda is such a good shout. Totally. I'm having so much fun googling the instruments. And then it like piecing together in my head and I googled piccolo trumpet and whilst Jack was talking that my internal monologue just went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's it would take it, it would take that out of its little case. It would carry its yeah. little case in. It would take that out. Yeah. Yeah. Because trumpets you think of as being these loud, powerful instruments, like maybe a panda Although the, mm. the regular pandas are really cute too, but they're quite big. And so the piccolo trumpet is just like, oh, yeah. you really tried. <laughs> yeah. All right. I have two more and then we should cover most of the orchestra, at least these, this kind of messed up, lesser known instrument version. One is in the woodwind section that we haven't talked about is um, the contrabassoon. It's the an octave lower than a normal bassoon. They're huge. Again, when you're sitting down, it's taller than you. And I would associate this with the blue whale because it has this very deep, resonant sound uh, that reminds me of whale song. Almost, you feel the vibrations more than you hear the pitch. Nice. And does it, does it when this is played, is it sort of like long notes? Yeah, it usually is. So you can really feel the vibrations in your whole body. Yeah, yeah. That would be... One of the things I've thought about before is how... Well, one of the things we talk about on the podcast is how scary the deep sea is. But one of the things I've thought about before is like being in the sea and then just like not seeing them first, but then feeling like the vibrations of whale song, like just in you. And then them sort of like looming out the blue. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's quite a sound. Now that I know about the existence of that squid, I don't even need the water I'm in to be that deep. If I just turn around and that squid is there, I am gone. <laughs> yeah. As someone who is just afraid of even snorkeling, that all sounds like nightmare fuel to me. <laughs> <laughs> Can I come in on the contrabassoon? Because again, Googled it. It is huge. Um, how? <laughs> so, lesser known fact about me 
is I learned the bassoon for a year when I was like 11. Sorry? I took bassoon <laughs> lessons. I know. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to ever bring this up before, <laughs> before arguably during or after this episode. But yeah. So, and the bassoon itself, like learning the bassoon was obscure enough. In the orchestra world, who plays the contrabassoon? It's bassoonists. Usually people don't just play the contrabassoon. They can double on the contrabassoon, but their primary instrument is bassoon. You'll, you will never meet a contrabassoon player who sees a bassoon and is like, what is that? Because they use the same <laughs> fingerings anyways. <laughs> okay, cool. Because all of these instruments you're saying, like the mega tuba or the tiny trumpet, like how how do you... <laughs> How do you get there? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, because it's obscure enough to be 11 and want to learn the bassoon. Yeah. And All right. n- never mind be like, when I grow up, I want to be the, a contrabassoonist. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're deep cuts in terms of instruments. I mean, people don't usually... Sometimes people might specialize in one of these, but a piccolo trumpet player plays a regular trumpet. A sackbutt player plays the trombone. A Wagner tuba player plays the French horn, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Okay, are we on to the final, the final member? I think we're on the f- final one. And for this one, we haven't talked about any string instruments yet. So I'm kind of going to talk about one earlier string instrument, lesser known, called the viola di gamba. Ooh. It was mostly used in the Renaissance period. It's kind of a cross between a cello and a guitar. So if you can imagine an instrument that looks like a cello, you play it with a bow, but it actually has frets on the fingerboard. A cello doesn't usually have frets. It's like if if you put your finger down, it doesn't matter if it's between the notes B and C, it's going to play something in the middle, you know. But with this instrument, it's exactly in tune. And it has this really beautiful, elegant sound, which, to tie it back home, reminds me of peacocks. Oh, nice. We've gone full circle, and it was never even planned. (laughs) And they are... I've just Googled them, as we have done with everything that you've mentioned. They are... Be- it is a beautiful instrument. Yeah. Like, the pictures that come up are just one of those examples of, like, exquisite craftsmanship. Like, yeah. they look stunning, which is the response anyone has to looking at a peacock. They are... Yeah, you've... Unless it's roaming roaming your street, like, in your childhood, in which case your response to a peacock might be, oh, fuck, the peacock gang's out again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or or usually like, eh, I guess that's a peacock. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> These are, yeah, they're stunning. Yeah, you've taken us on a real tour of the kind of, I don't know, the back streets of the orchestra or whatever. And out of everything we've seen, this is, yeah, visually lovely. Yeah. So why, why I mean, why do, I don't know if this is a question anyone could answer never mind you i've got no idea but like why do some instruments fall out of fate why isn't the viola da gamba you know you said it was very kind of renaissance so why aren't people kind of writing about it now or writing pieces for it i guess not writing about it that's a great question i think you'd probably have to ask a proper musicologist to get an official answer but from my understanding it has a lot to do with the expressive goals of every artistic period So once an instrument stops being able to meet the demands that the composer is putting on them, instrument makers create new instruments that are even better. A good example is a piano. I mean, composers like 
Beethoven and Mozart weren't writing on our modern piano. They were writing on an instrument called a pianoforte, which has a much more limited range of soft and loud. So because of the music that they were writing, it was pushing the limits of this instruments and instrument makers wanted to bring out the beauty of their music even more. So eventually it evolved into the modern piano. And I guess something similar could be true of these other instruments, although some like the sub contrabass tuba are just novelties. That is a very cool answer, weaving in evolution, which, you know, as a phrase, concept, whatever we're calling it, nailed it for the show. But also, Keon, don't sell yourself short. You are the greatest musicologist who's ever been on How Many Geese. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's high praise. <laughs> That was that was great. I love our I love the Goose Philharmonic. I don't know how many are going to be left alive after the tour putting all those together. <laughs> I mean the the cost of fuel on the tour moving the contrabassoonist around is going to be extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, actually I take that back. We know exactly how many are going to be left at the end of the tour. One and it's the squid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Long after we're all gone that squid is going to be <laughs> exactly (laughs) nice one yeah I mean that I think if anything justifies our decision to save that question to ask an expert because we would not have come close to that no we'd have been like piano next (laughs) (laughs) well I'm, I'm glad I could I could share some of my favorite instruments. I hope if you're listening to this, you go and listen to some clips of these instruments on YouTube because they're just wild. Absolutely. Absolutely. And where can people listen to your stuff, Kian, we should say? Where can people find your work, whether it's the birds, whether it's the other stuff you've done? Where's the best place for people to listen to your stuff? Well, you can visit my website, uh, kianravai.com. You can look me up on YouTube. A lot of my music is on my YouTube channel. But if you want to listen to California Suite, you can do that free on YouTube. I also have a Bandcamp uh, page where if you purchase the album, then all the proceeds will be donated to Autobahn California, which goes toward uh, restoring bird habitats in California, which is the whole reason that I wrote this piece. Nice. That's fantastic. Yeah, really nice. That felt like quite a kind of nice wrap up. But can I just, because I put out a question to some of our listeners just to say we're going to have a composer on the show, any questions? And a lot of them put forward the same, you know, a variation of what animals would make up, what orchestra. But if I could chuck out a couple essentially quickfire questions, because that one you had time to prep for. And so this question from Kira underscore Sherling, what creature, real or mythical, do you desperately want to compose a piece on? Oh, that's a great question. Well... One of the albums that I have on Spotify is a collection of piano pieces inspired by mythical creatures, which includes some of the ones that I've been itching to write a piece inspired by. But right now, I think I would love to write a piece inspired by the Magna Pina Squid, just something that makes you feel uh, like you're going to have a heart attack. Which is both simultaneously real and mythical. Exactly. Which is it? I hope I never find out. (laughs) (laughs) A piece filled with horrors vast beyond imagining. (laughs) Multiple people asked us, what do you think the most tone-deaf animal 
could or would be. Do we think that this animal is toned like because if you're tone deaf, the easiest thing to say is, well, let's go for an animal that's literally deaf and can't hear anything <laughs> or because tone deaf in a human context is you know you can hear sounds but you're just rubbish at uh you know whatever making them is that what tone deaf is singing them making sounds oh to- yeah like you can't sing on pitch you can't yeah uh, so along with so i was i was gonna you know go for the animals that can't hear but what animal do we think would be able to hear but would just be rubbish at making noise I feel like it's got to be an animal which is incredibly awkward. Like, I feel like it's an animal which would get up at karaoke, but the moment it got up, everyone else would sit down. And it's like, oh, Jesus, you know, here we go. Maybe a camel? Have you heard camel noises? Yeah. That's a great shout. Yeah. Bit ungainly, bit awkward. You can tell they're really trying to say something, but it just comes out saying sounding like blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah yeah very nice and then the last one because we couldn't let you go without answering this question what instrument would best portray a goose <laughs> have you ever heard an english horn uh, d- despite us both being in england not that i'm aware of but well, we can change that right now <laughs> yeah yeah, it, this is also a relative of the oboe family. And despite the name, um, it's it was originally called a cor anglais, which means ang- angled horn. But through mistranslations, people thought it was English horn. So it actually has nothing to do with the UK. Um, but yeah, it has it has a nasally sort of reedy quality, um, but is the most beautiful version of the oboe, I think. Um, and it can be kind of clumsy if you want it in the low register, like a goose. That, I was going to say, that's very complimentary to the goose to say it's the most beautiful of the oboe family. Yeah, but then, again, I've Googled it, and it's there's, there's, a, there's a dusting of awkwardness about this instrument's design. It's got like a sort of, I don't even know, like it's swollen at one end. One of the ones I'm looking at just seems to have a bend right in the middle of it, but... I will be listening to the the English horn. Uh, I th- I think as long as it can be uh, used at some point aggressively, then it definitely <laughs> ticks the goose box. That's right. It definitely has that capacity. Yeah, and at a moment where aggression is neither called for nor expected. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Kian. Uh, this has been a fantastic spin around the orchestral world, a world that Jack and I know absolutely nothing about. And now whatever we do know is incredibly obscure. So <laughs> it's all worked out. <laughs> it's all worked out wonderfully. <laughs> well, thanks, Roddy and Jack, for having me on. I'm happy to help. Let me know if you ever need more obscure instruments to add to your knowledge. To add to the Goose Philharmonic. Yeah, when we need the Goose Philharmonic. When we go on tour, we'll make sure that we put a call into you, Keon. I'm there when you need me. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, as we said, you know, you can check out some of Keon's music on Spotify and the California Suite is on YouTube. And if there's anything else you want to give a shout out for, uh, your cats have Instagram pages or... <laughs> oh, I wish. Maybe one day I'll post them on my Instagram. So Fantastic. you can follow me there. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us and 
Best of luck with your next compositions. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the birder segment. It's bird time, feather o'clock. Jack Badams, this week, we're calling it... Well, I couldn't have said it birder myself. <laughs> we are going to keep these up <laughs> for as long as it takes. Until there's nothing left. Until the dictionary has been exhausted. The thesaurus of birder phrases is empty. Exactly. The Oxford English Dictionary Supremos are on their knees weeping for us to stop. Susie Dent from Countdown <laughs> crying out for respite. Didn't think she was going to get name dropped <laughs> in under a minute of this segment, but there we go. So, welcome back, everyone. We're delighted to continue our journey around the bird world with our sponsors, Birder. For anyone unfamiliar, if this is your first time joining us, Birder is a bird watching app that gets you outdoors and turns bird watching and the discovery of nature into a fun game. I was about to say much more of a fun game. It's already a fun game, yeah. but this is very much, you know bringing in challenges leaderboards and badges the sharing side of it and exactly exactly and um, it's com- we should say it's completely free it's a completely free app absolutely free the app is free nature's free this podcast is free in a world dominated by rampant capitalism how many geese is here to guide us in partnership with birda to a free enjoyment of the natural world oh wow i don't know whether we can follow that <laughs> <laughs> what a rousing well, statement <laughs> And this week with Birder, we're going to cross the Atlantic, we're going to cross the continent again to get all the way over to sunny California to join Kian in his homeland to check in on a California bird. And one of the magnificent birds over there that we're going to visit is the California scrub jay. It's one of the most iconic, one of the most iconic California birds. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the California scrub jay is around about the size of a magpie, Mm -hmm. if you're listening from the UK. And whilst they can be referred to as blue jays, the blue jay is a completely different species entirely, but um, this is still a blue bird. Hence the mix-up. I was looking at pictures of them, obviously not in California, so jealous of everyone who is, for both scrub jays and other reasons. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they always say about the Californian lifestyle. They always say, you know, I really wish I could move to California because my life is lacking scrub jays. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) But... For those listening, I mean, Jack, have you got anything on the scrub jay? So here's the thing I think I know about scrub jays is they are incredibly well studied. When you're learning about animal behavior, scrub jays often pop up because they have been, they've been color ringed so that you can identify individuals. And there's been really in-depth behavioral studies done on scrub jays and how they interact with each other. Now, I think I'm right in saying that scrub jays are one of the animals that we have been able to prove that they have a concept of deception because scrub jays store foods oh. so they'll cache food so what scrub jays do it's like the jays we have in the uk is they go around and they find food and they cache it but what they've shown is that other scrub jays will look out for a jay caching some food and then they'll just fly down and dig it out and take it for themselves so what they proved was that scrub jays if they know they're being watched will pretend to cache food but keep it in their crop keep it in their mouth so that they have tricked 
They've been able to put themselves into the shoes of another bird and know what it's after. They've been able to preempt its actions and then they've been able to pretend that they're doing something to throw that bird off the scent and then they go away and they cache their food somewhere else. And it's only through being able to really study populations and getting to know all the birds individually and get a really in-depth knowledge of their um, interactions that we've been able to prove that they're very intelligent and have a concept of of basically yeah how to deceive each other so with what you've just said there on their deception i got that the brain to body mass ratio of adult scrub jays rivals that of chimpanzees and cetaceans and is dwarfed only by that of humans and whilst i didn't have the bit on them keeping the food in the crop i saw that they store they'll basically use small stones to trick they'll ah. put they'll kind of actually act out sticking something in there um instead of you know food or that's really cool yeah they are well i mean look we have waxed lyrical about corvid corvids many times on uh, how many geese and we're a big fan of the corvid and uh, yeah they're they're one of the ones that we know most about because they've been they've been really well studied and to go full circle on deception one of the amazing things about scrub jays which you can see on their page in the birder app is that they mimic the call of hawks so well it's hard to tell them apart and the exact reason for this isn't known. One theory is that it's, you know, is to warn of predators or other bits and bobs. But if we're going down the deception path, another thing is that it scares away anything which could be stealing their, you know, food and pilfering their cash to just have it so spot on perfect. So, yeah. Yeah, they are. They're very, world. they're a very wily animal. And lastly, one of the amazing things um, also, again, going down this route of just how intelligent they are is that they are known to summon other scrub jays at the body of a dead jay to have essentially a funeral that can last for up to half an hour. And this has been researched by um, UC Davis in California. Uh, they, they will get around and screech over the body of the dead bird wow. I, in funerals that can last for up to half an hour. One of the most amazing things I've actually ever seen in the UK is coming round... Uh, I was walking down a street and heard this real racket going on. Looked down a driveway and there was a dead magpie laying in the middle of the drive. And there was just like a whole oh, like wow. group of magpies around it. And some sat in the trees and some sat in the bushes. And ju- just like that. And I have, I, I don't, I've not read into why we think that might happen. But it was very similar to what you've just said there with the scrub jay. And I, I, I can imagine a, a very Corvid trait. So when you're out there in California, or if you haven't got the app already, go to our pages, click the How Many Goose link. It will take you through to the App Store and download the app there. Pick up your Scrub Jay outfit, go out there and get deep into the deception game. Trick some Scrub Jays, see what happens, start some kind of food cash war. Um, (laughs) But, you know, obviously be respectful. (laughs) Treading a fine line for a show that has a segment on fighting nature. Yeah. And that was the Goose Philharmonic. Thank you very much to Keon for joining us all the way from the US and for lending us some clips of his recordings that we could put into the show. A special thank you too for being patient with us while we disappeared off to Mexico for a month. We're very excited to bring you our Mexico episodes and they'll be coming soon, but we've got a few more tricks up our sleeve to get your way between now and then. Follow the Instagram page at HowManyGeese to stay on top of updates and anyone who supported us through Buy Me A Coffee, a special thank you too for that. It really helps. This is it from Jack and I, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye!